This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Hey there, you guys. I said hey. I'm the DJ, and you're listening to the DWP as we take a trip down the catacombs as we review Colin Baker's Revelation of the Daleks. I said hey, get down. Who? Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to fall for that accent. All this one. It's meant to be Alexis Sale, not Ringo Starr, said Thomas. Well, welcome one and all to another episode of the Doctor Podcast. Yes, your ears do not deceive you. You have me two weeks in a row, you huh. lucky, lucky people. <laughs> <laughs> so what's all that about, Trevor? Is this insomnia? Um, it kind of is. Someone said to me, hey, Trev, can you get up like at half past five in the morning and come and record an episode of the Doctor podcast uh. on your weekend, on your day <laughs> off? And uh, I said, sign me up. I couldn't wait. Fantastic. So, yes. I'm, I'm so pleased. I think you started recording more regularly now that you're not a host of the DWP than when you were. <laughs> <laughs> But you would have I missed the news. That comment. You would have missed the news that has been announced within the last few hours. In other words, you were sleeping again when something important happens. And uh, the, yes. the BBC announced just a little while ago, as we're recording this, that Deep Breath is going to be shown in cinemas at the same time it's going out on BBC One on the twenty third of August. So this is going to be Day of the Doctor Part Two, and we get to see Peter Capaldi's debut on the silver screen, not in three D this time. Just a regular 2D presentation. But uh, what's your reaction to that, Trevor? Well, when when you told me about that about oh, two and a half minutes ago, <laughs> um, I, I went and had a quick look online. And according to the BBC site, there is going to be content um, in the cinema version that will not be in the TV version. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Does it say what? Mm, it doesn't say what. It doesn't even say what countries the thing's going to screen in yet and mm. when can I buy tickets. But it assures you that, yes, you can turn up in fancy dress if you want. Well, so, yeah, they called it dressing up on the UK site, which is so not right now. Even for the UK fan base, nobody says, oh, I'm going to go and celebrate some kind of fan event by dressing up. Cosplay is a recognised term here now in the UK. And it just shows how out of touch the BBC marketing arm actually are. I but, tell you. Um, there I you go. You. Now, I mean, I, I don't know whether you got this as well, but when we watched Day of the Doctor in cinemas, we had a couple of little skits at the beginning. There was um, something with Dan Starkey and Strax, and there was the two Doctors, Smith and Tennant, were on screen in a little sketch just before the, the main event started. So I wonder if that's what they're referring to. There's going to be a couple more, you know, specially recorded ditties or sketches or something yeah yeah yeah. that 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 could most possibly be it i'd say just like give them like a little teaser thing before the main episode or you know you know something to watch yeah Yeah. i mean i suppose it would make more sense than giving them a a longer episode in the cinema compared to the TV version. Sure, I don't think there'll be any deleted scenes or anything like that. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is a good thing, but I'm, I'm considering it from a personal point of view. I, I would much prefer to watch my Doctor Who with fellow fans on a large screen. Um, in, in terms of its success, I can't see how they would expect to beat you know, the success of Day of the Doctor last year. It was the 50th anniversary. It was a massive event. I, I, I don't think they'll be able to measure the success in the same way because I don't think there'll be as many people going to see it, certainly not in the UK. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's a great thing, but um, watching Doctor in the cinema leaves me a bit nonplussed. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go see Day of the Doctor in the cinema. It, it, it just didn't interest me that much. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan as used to watching Doctor Who at home on TV on your own and on my own, <laughs> yes, with the door shut and the phone off the hook. <laughs> the last right. thing you want to do is watch it with other real people. No, I do no. understand where you're coming from. That's that's basically the 1990s for me. <laughs> so, and my obsessive compulsive will probably kick in because due to the um, what do you call it? time differences and whatever, it will actually be available to get from various websites before I would have a chance to see it in the cinema. Because I think like 7.30pm your time is like 6am my time. That's right. Which means, yeah. which means the cinemas here wouldn't show it till they open you know, at the earliest, half past 10. Well, would they? So would they? Because um, oh, last, last time they did show it in Brisbane, I remember, at half past five, because I specifically went to check to see whether you would be able to see it at the same time it went out on BBC One. And the opportunity oh. was there if you wanted it to be. <laughs> you just don't want to I'd get probably... out of bed, do you? No, I don't think they'd want me at the cinema in my pyjamas. No. <laughs> Definitely no. not. Although it's probably more preferable to having you out of them. Anyway, um, let, let's, <laughs> let's consider uh, the other news that's been announced in um, the latest edition of Doctor Who magazine, which... Uh, arrived through my letterbox yesterday, damaged goods. Now, I'm not quite sure, Trevor, whether you were a big fan of the old Virgin New Adventures at all. I did read quite a few, but I'd never read this particular one that was written by RTD for Mm. the original Virgin range, no. No, nor did I. So this is probably going to be a short piece of coverage, um, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Um, I'm pleased that... um, Big Finisher adapting any new adventures, first of all, because the new adventures undoubtedly have a style and a tone that is totally unique, and they've not really gone anywhere near it, apart from when they've deliberately adapted previous Virgin Adventures at Big Finish. So, one, I'm quite looking forward to that, because it does remind me of the kind of beginnings of my obsession in the 90s, because I really got into fandom through the new adventures, really. And Mm. also... um, Anything that brings Russell T. Davis closer uh, to Doctor Who again, I think, is a good thing. And, uh, you know, despite what I think of some of his episodes, I'd very much like to see him in the Writers Club at Big Finish. And, uh, you know, I'm not totally adverse to seeing another episode penned by him either. Well, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll put this down to to 5.30 in the morning, your intro. (laughs) Well, I I was still getting over the shock of you actually wanting to see more episodes written by RTD. No, 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 um, don't twist my words. I I, I said I wouldn't mind seeing an episode after the last one he wrote was End of Time. So that was years ago, five, six years ago. I'd be interested as as to what kind of story he would deliver now, given the the, the style of the show that Moffat has designed. Uh, I I wonder whether or not he'd just write it, basically, in the same way Gareth Roberts does. Gareth Roberts writes his stories irrespective of the era and the tone of the series. And um, perhaps RTD would do the same, but perhaps he would actually deliver us something a bit different now. Oh, speaking of Gareth Roberts, they need to do some of his books for Big Finish. I mean, I would love to see Higher Science ah. as a Big Finish audio. Well, that would, I think that, I think that would fit Big Finish perfectly. Aren't, aren't they doing that? I, I know they're doing a couple of his. I think the Romance of Crime, English Way of Death, and the World Man of mm. War um, are either recorded. I think two of those three are recorded, 
and the other one is to be recorded. And of course, we've got the fourth Doctor with the second Romana. So Tom Baker and Lulla Ward there, they recorded in their separate studios, so they weren't together. But uh, I, I think it's certainly possible if, the, if they decide to go for um, more new adventures as opposed to the missing ones, then yeah, the highest science has got to be on the list somewhere. Mm, Chelonians mm. are superb. <laughs> oh yes, fantastic, fantastic villain. Well, staying on the theme of books, as expected, really, it's no real surprise. There's going to be three Twelfth Doctor novels published in September this year. This is, will be with Peter Capaldi's Doctor, along with Jenna Coleman. And again, I've really lost contact, really, with this kind of range. They they started releasing these books, you know, when the show came back in 2005. The kind of hardback, the small hardback books. And I think they were aimed generally at a, at a younger audience, certainly younger than me anyway. And uh, I, mm. I kind of lost contact with those. But have you have you read any of those? Are you still into that range at all? Well, we did actually cover uh, some of the Ninth Doctor ones and I believe some of the Tenth Doctor ones uh, for a few episodes of the DWP mm, last mm, year mm. Um, when we did some retrospectives for those Doctors. Um, and yes, they definitely are written for the younger audience. I mean, they're not written for us people. You know, they they are a little bit scary, but not scary enough that they wouldn't be, you know, sort of accessible to like teenage years. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they, they really aren't that bad. I, I mean, they're not amazing books. And they're pretty standard books, but you know they're they're still fun to read. It's good that we are seeing original novels featuring current doctors mm. because it's 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 good to have that universe expanded beyond the you know bounds of the TV screen, yeah. or the cinema screen. No, I, I agree. I think it's unlikely this kind of story is going to be what target books were to you and I when we grew up. And uh, I, well, mm. I say grew up, I was already grown up by the time I started reading the target books. But they they still form part of the basis of my fandom and uh, I, I I don't know I I can't really summon up the motivation to sit there and read book after book you know how difficult it was to get me to read anything um, for, for those episodes of the DWP <laughs> I did actually read one however and I can't remember what it was but it was it was basically a western before a town called Mercy had screened I think it was written by a chap called James Swallow and I really quite enjoyed it I was um, quite surprised at how graphic it was in places but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they they are quite scary. And if if Capaldi's Doctor is going to be more angry, more brash, blah blah, all of the stuff that we've been hearing Moffat and everybody else coming out with, and perhaps these books may be a little bit darker as well. So you know, it, it, they're written by established Doctor Who authors. So I I might take a look when they come out, perhaps. Well, hopefully by the time they come out, there'll be a few more uh, publicity stills of Mr. Capaldi. Because mm. at the moment, I think the only one they're using is that awful one, which looks like he's reaching out to steal your lunch money. Um, <laughs> Do you know, one of these books is using that precise image of him. I mean, there are a few oh, more. Oh, no. I mean, there, there was a time we had that image for how long? Four months, something like that, and nothing mm, else. Mm. And then we got about four or five over the last four or five weeks or so. But yeah, no, the um, the cover to Silhouette, which is... Justin Richards' book does does have that picture. I, I always thought he looked a little bit like a magician in it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. Anyway, I think we've covered books, we've covered adaptions, we've covered audios. Um, well, let, let's let's stick on the audio trail. Let's bring Ian and Michelle in to review the latest Eighth Doctor and Charlie and Carrie's story, Scaredy Cat. 
Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish, sorting out the wheat from the chaff and nonsense, saving you money on the ones that are not so good. Scaredy Cat finds the Dr. Karas and Charlie trapped on a mysterious planet with a psychopath. So this one starts off with um, the Doctor showing Karas and Charlie the gardens of the TARDIS. And then Karis, being rather ungrateful in fact, says, but I want to see a planet where no one has been before. And, and Charlie makes allusions to the Garden of Eden. So they, they travel to this planet where supposedly nobody lives and nobody has been. And of course they find somebody there and, and the plot goes from there. It's an odd story there's there's some quite haunting elements with with the little girl that sings the scaredy cat song uh, in sort of the background all the time, which is quite creepy, uh, and kind of fourth Doctor era reminiscent. It's the kind of sort of creepy sort of gothicness that you, you would have found there. That little girl, you saw her too, didn't you? Yes. Well, how do you explain it? What is it? When I was small, my grandmother used to read me stories. She had a special word, Yarana. It means, literally, the soul of the vengeful. Those whose lives have been cut short early and died with empty hearts. Um, and at the same time, you've got sort of a bit of a base under siege type element with... Um scientists doing sort of slightly dubious experiments and sort of looking into what they're doing. It was an intriguing story. It, it didn't hugely grab me as you went along, but it was certainly a lot of interesting elements to it. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. It, it's quite short. I think this may in fact be the shortest main range story ever released by Big Finished, and, and I was surprised by that. But it it has the feel of a short story and it works fairly well along those lines. Uh, the characters were interesting, particularly the villain. The villain is quite horrific and uh, quite haunting. He's a, a mass murderer who is extremely unrepentant. And and the story uses a device which I really like if it's used well, and I think it is here, uh, of uh, kind of a soliloquy. You hear him thinking aloud, uh, philosophizing really about uh, some of the themes of the story and indeed things like death and stuff. So it is intriguing. Where it lost me a little bit is when we get the reveal about what the little girl really is and a little bit of the kind of pseudoscience about you know, what's happening on the planet. And I didn't buy into the, to the scientific end of things. And yet it was still a story that was kind of interesting to listen to. I'm completely with you with the pseudoscience in this. It's crossed the line of, I mean, all the pseudoscience in Doctor Who is always, well, guff for the most part. And, and you learn to live with that. This one, though, crossed over the line into magic, quite frankly, and into, you know, really obviously weird stuff. And I struggled to believe that the Doctor, who usually is so quick to point out that there is no magic and all this kind of stuff, would be putting this stuff forward and believing in it because it really wasn't science. It was, it was very odd indeed. And, and for me, it really undermined the, the, the structure of the story and the reveal of what was going on. Overall, I enjoyed this story as I was listening to it, but I, I found that looking back on it now, even just a week later, it's quite forgettable. And I'm, I'm struggling to bring plot points and characters back to my mind and I'm having to refer back to references because it just hasn't stuck with me. It, it, it was sort of a, a bit of a confection but doesn't seem to have um, lasted. 
Well, I tend to be in agreement with everything you said. And you know, there are some interesting elements in here. There's a, a point at which Keres goes back in time to uh, the early history of this world. And he has to learn, like so many companions before him, that you can't change history. And it's, of course, a hard lesson. I've seen the medical facilities you've got. You could sort this out in less than a day. Yes, I could. We can't interfere with this colony. Whatever happens must occur without our intervention. Somehow, someway, Eldrin's daughter ends up four million years into this planet's future. We cannot change the sequence of events that lead to that. We can't leave them to die. We can. Another interesting thing going on with Kara is they continue to hint at a kind of a dark side to him, evidently, before he joined the Doctor in the uh, in the religion that he was involved in back in the Divergent universe. Um, killing and sacrifice was an important part of quote, saving, unquote, people. And that begins to come to the fore little by little in these uh, in these stories. So hinting at a plot to be developed, it's a little hard to believe because he's so sweet most of the time. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. And again, this one kind of a interesting short story, but uh, perhaps not one that I would return to very often. Instead of vainly trying to come up with some sort of tenuous link between cats and Daleks, I'm just going to say, we're now going to look at the sixth Doctor story, Revelation of the Daleks. Uh-huh. I see you've been busy, whereas you have been stupid, Doctor. Prerogative of a Time Lord. Where's Perry? Safe. For the time being. I must say I'm surprised to see you. The last time we met, your ship blew up. I thought with you on board. Not when there is an escape pod. Or it seems a lift by a transporter to this place. Ah, there I was, fortunate. Oh, I like the statue, by the way. Very good likeness. Though really, you shouldn't have bothered. As with the news of Stengos' death, it was all part of my scheme to lure you here. All very clever. And you know why we were going to be looking at this story, Trevor? Ah, why? Because Leeson chose it. And Leeson, as the particularly intelligent listener will have noticed, is not here. Um, We were talking to him just before we were going to be recording. And so having structured an entire episode around his agenda, he has technical problems and can't join us. So, Trevor, when was the last time you saw Revelation of the Daleks? Um... I think the year had a one at the beginning of it, so it's been quite a while. This is going to be thorough (laughs) and in-depth, isn't it? Wonderful. (laughs) Fortunately, I've watched it today. (laughs) Nice. Nice. What what are your memories, then? What are your memories of this particular... Well, Well, it was actually very anticipated, because it was the Sixth Doctor Dalek story. Everybody knew it was coming, Mm. it was the end of the season... What are your memories of, of watching this? I don't know. It, it, it was a really interesting season for me too, I think, because we'd just come off the back of a very, very mixed season. I mean, when, when you go to the heights of stories like Vengeance on Varos, but then by the end you're looking at stories like Time Lash hmm. and you'd just come off the two Doctors, which, which wasn't particularly 100% successful. And then we get Revelation of the Daleks. Now, everything on paper for this really... Uh, points to it being an amazing story. You've got Graham Harper back, director. Eric Sayward's written it, so you know there's going to be lots of violence in it. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it, it's a weird story. I mean, I, I love the interactions between the Doctor and Perry in this one. I, I, I think it's one of the better stories between the two. I mean, certainly the stuff at the beginning of episode one where yeah. they leave the TARDIS and head over to the uh, uh, mortuary or crypt or whatever it is. Um, 
all that sort of stuff is really, really good. And it's it's great to see those two characters really getting along with each other. And it really then extended into the next season where we had Trial of a Time Lord, where I think the uh, Perry-Doctor relationship finally became the relationship that it should have been from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, apart from that, it's a little bit of a hot mess for me. Uh, we it's it's one of those Dalek stories that has two factions of Daleks in it, and I've I've never been I don't know particularly on board with stories that do that kind of thing. I I feel the same sort of way about Remembrance, which was uh, done about a year or two later. That 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 was done a little bit better because it was much easier to see what the different factions were doing, and it was more clearly defined. But in this one, it just seems to be one bunch of Daleks fighting against another bunch of Daleks with Davros in the middle somewhere. <laughs> and um, I, I think at the time for me, it was a little bit confusing. It, it's a very, very dark story too. Yes, it is. It's a massively dark story. And, uh, you know, I don't think I disagree with anything that you said there. I mean, uh, I, I think I would probably look at the relationship between a doctor and Perry as still fairly acrimonious. I mean, like you say, the whole of the first episode, they're basically, it, it, well, it's a two-hander. It is a two-hander for the Doctor and Perry because they don't meet anybody else with the exception of this guy who's massively disfigured who ends up attacking them and then Perry hits him very, very gently. It has to be said with a twig from a tree and kills him. <laughs> but um, the the actual relationship and the dynamic between the Doctor and Perry, I still think he's, he's, he's very season 22, not season 23. But I like it because Colin Baker has toned down massively. is is nowhere near as crazy uh, in, in this one. And uh, in fact, there isn't a single occasion in the first episode, at least, where he says the same word three times. He only says it twice. <laughs> so I don't know whether he got fed up with having this kind of motif of, of having to just shout words three times and uh, just decided to do it less. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a, it is a strange story. I always look at this story as Eric Sayward trying to emulate what Robert Holmes did in the Caves of Androzani because there aren't really any nice characters here. You're not supposed to sit there and empathise with any of them, even if you do kind of, well, I do anyway gravitate towards Orsini. I think Orsini, who's this professional assassin, is a wonderful character and is played almost with some, you know, Shakespearean gusto. It's it's absolutely wonderful. I love watching him. Um but ultimately no one is particularly pleasant here. It's a very odd setup. It's a big trap for the doctor, essentially. The doctor isn't really in episode one at all because all we do is follow him and perry going on this walk through beautiful Mm. locations absolutely beautiful locations it's very very convincing as an alien planet even when they get to the office block and the the ramp going underneath the the buildings covered in snow it just looks wonderful so as dark and strange as it is this is one of my favorite Sixth Doctor stories, even though I know it probably isn't the strongest story. I think you're right. I think Varos is definitely better. You're absolutely right. Um, The first episode really centres on the soap opera that's taking place. All that stuff in the mortuary, in in a tranquil repose, with uh, young Tassim Becker pining for the older Jabel, and uh, all all, all that weird stuff going on with Tarkas and stuff like that. And and there's just dead bodies everywhere. So, I mean, it is a mortuary. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you know this this love story set in a mortuary type of thing, and it, it's it's very very weird. It is it is really odd. You're right because well, first of all, I would say you've picked up on probably the weakest point in this story for me, and that's Tassenbacher. I, I, I might not be saying the character's name correct, but that's not new for me. Um, I, I I don't think her performance is very good. I think it's extremely cardboard, it's not convincing in the slightest, and it's highlighted by the brilliance of Clive Swift, who is thoroughly believable as Joe Bell, and of course he turned up again in Voyage of the Damned, as a different character obviously, Mr Copper I think it was, and mm. uh, he, he is excellent, he's thoroughly dislikable, completely self-motivated, and um, he's the only one who will sit there and argue and have a go at Davros, or the great healer, um, who, who again, I think is, is is brilliantly depicted in this story, just having that head in a tank that swivels round. Now, that is something I remember from original broadcast as a child, and I remember that scaring me, because Davros here is an extremely scary character, I think. He's, he's just totally insane in this. I mean, it's, it's not the Davros that I'm used to, I suppose. He's, he's just... <laughs> a little bit too bonkers in this and I, I can probably understand why he's got there because he's you know just this this disembodied head just hiding out on this backwater planet in this mortuary you know desperately and vainly trying to resurrect his beloved dalek species uh it's it's oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it with the davros in this it kind of reminds me the way that big finish treat Davros a lot. Yes, that yes, yes. he's 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 not so much um, in charge of all the Daleks. We 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 often find Davros in big Finnish stories hiding out on some backwater planet or asteroid or medical facility, trying to get some Daleks together, or you know trying to convert people or something like that. So. This Davros in this is very similar to what they try and do with uh, Big Finish. Well, I, I think, yeah, that's right. I think this this kind of Davros is definitely developed, I think, in the Big Finish storylines. And Terra Firma, which Ian and Michelle reviewed a little while ago, actually looks at the psychological condition of Davros. And I think there are clear links to both this story and indeed Remembrance. And, you know, you, you said earlier Davros was insane. And of course he wasn't originally. Certainly when we first met him, we realised that there was some kind of psychopath there but was he actually crazy i i, I don't think he no, was he no, was he was a scientist whereas he's clearly stepped over the the, the the line in this particular story just going back to something else that you said about the kind of tone and feel of this story it we said it was dark it's actually got some very dry comedy in it as well and again I, I something I'd missed I, I must have seen this loads of times and I, I'd never really picked up uh, th- this line but when Orsini meets Kara for the first time he describes how he didn't listen to Bostock and he ended up with a with an artificial leg and he starts talking about having a faulty hydraulic valve and it's done in such a comedic way that I started laughing, and I, 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 I think that was the intention. And that's something that you don't get in the story that I compared it to earlier, which is Caves, because that's very straight down the line. There's no real overtly comic scenes or lines in that. Whereas this, I think Saywood is trying to introduce a kind of almost a body horror element, but kind of combine it with 
with some comedy. And I'm not sure whether that's to everybody's tastes, you know. <laughs> so Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that also extends to another character that we haven't talked about already, the uh, character of the DJ, oh, yes. played by this gentleman, Alexi Sale. Do, I mean, Do you not think Leeson should have been cast <laughs> as the DJ? Because ultimately... The two are absolutely comparable. One's from Liverpool, one's from Lincoln, but apart from that... Well, going off the intro to this episode, I, I think, yes, he should have been cast as the DJ. <laughs> yes. But, um, uh, uh, again, I can see what Sayward was trying to do with that character. We we have this DJ character who um, plays records for dead people. Very, I mean, it's like a satire and take-off of hospital radio to a certain yes, extent. But yes, just amped, yeah. amped up a thousand percent. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't know who this Alexis L guy was. When he, he he was in Doctor Who, he was very much a U of K phenomenon, I presume, you know, famous over there. Mm. And, I, I, you know, to this day, I don't really like the DJ character. No, nor do I. I. I it, it, it stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I, I, I do tend to agree. And the, the scenes are too long. Um, I mean, I, I've got no problem in listening to part of his show, <laughs> which is what we did when we first saw him. But it goes on for about three minutes. And it's only mm. at the end he drops out of the DJ character and into his normal voice. And, you know, you can see the character has a role to play, but it's it's not evident until, you know, way into episode two what precisely that is. And um, I, I agree, maybe he was supposed to be a bit of light relief, but for me, I could have done without that character. Oh, and then all that nonsense, I think, in episode three or four, where the uh, DJ uses the power of sound <laughs> to destroy a Dalek. I mean, okay, we, we, we've stepped beyond satire, we've just moved to, you know, to straight out. You know, sort of musical comedy by the sound of it. Almost, which again, it, it kind of is, is juxtaposed massively against the horror element of this. I mean, you look at the, the Glass Dalek, which I think would, I mean, it almost comes in at 25 minutes in, so it would have been the end of the original um, episode one had it been in 25 minute chunks instead of 45 minutes. You saw this really grotesque head of this, this rebel's father enmeshed in this last Dalek. And that is quite horrific. It's a scary mm, image. Mm. And then they kind of play it off against some ridiculous, light, co- comedic scene uh, where, you know, the DJ, once again, he's lusting after Perry within the first couple of minutes uh, of having met him as practically, you know, anyone who meets Perry in this season's fancies her, basically. <laughs> um, which, which I think is a little bit strange. And the, the tones... They don't feel like they gel together. They feel like they're a little bit, you know, they've been forced together. And it it, it creates a very unique story, in my view. Yeah, uh, I mean, on on that glass Dalek, I I might be wrong, but I've got a distant shred of memory in my head that that was a a very clear homage to a reference from one of the original Dalek books. I think even... you know, the original novelization of the second Doctor Who story. I think there was a glass Dalek in that one. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think that's why they had it in the story, because oh, they right. wanted to do something that was in one of the books or the comics. Well, it worked and brilliantly. Hoping... It worked yeah, really well. I... In fact, mm. this whole story, and I suppose you could argue the whole Sixth Doctor era lends itself over to the comic book way of telling things quite easily you know and um that's why it was so successful i think in that format particularly with frobisher and, and and so on but there's a lot of imagery certainly in revelation that you could just see in comic book frames yeah well that's right i mean i i i don't know which came first whether it was the uh 
comic book style of Doctor Who magazine influencing the show or vice versa. <laughs> but yeah, um, there, 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 there was a lot of that sort of stuff going on. I, th- I think it worked very well in a comic form. Mm. Not, not that I'm a massive fan of comics anyway, no, but I did either. read... But but I did read the Doctor Who magazine ones quite religiously back in the eighties. Mm. But um, I'm not sure it particularly works when you extend it to the televised show. Mm. Um, and Revelation is an example of that. But it, it's more so much that we have a very uh, weird mix of satire and comedy, but then out and out dark scenes and ultra violence yeah. and gore. That scene where Natasha's father, you know, basically says, "Kill me, kill me." I mean that that that's incredibly dark. Yeah, it is. Story, it is. I think. And, yeah, uh, I, I think possibly it was one of the reasons why the instruction came down on high, changed this. But as I said, I I think the production office were in such a state of disharmony at this point. You know, I, goodness knows how this entire story concept got green lit like you say the tones are all over the place it's it's overly violent the doctor isn't even part of the events for the first 45 minutes of the entire story therefore he Mm. has to be he has to become familiar with the storyline very very quickly in part two solve everything and it it doesn't it doesn't really work the thing that comes across about the doctor is that he's he's much more concerned about himself um he, he he talks about you know what happens to him at the end of part one you know yes all right he's already seen a future version of of what he thinks is his death but he he doesn't talk about perry you know he's only he's only interested in what happens to him and similarly perry (laughs) sits there and says well what about me is there a gravestone for me and off she goes looking around to see she can find her own gravestone and it it just doesn't sit right Wafflings from the uh, Leeson Fisher balcony. I'm watching the sun go down. A bit disappointed that I can't make it. But uh, there's a couple of points I wanted to cover uh, that I specifically want to talk about. Uh, the first, I suppose, is the addition of the special effects option on the on the DVD. In some episodes, I think this, this really really helps, and th- and this is one of them because it was because I love I love the dark tone of it. I love uh, I love the way that it's written. I love the way it's performed. I love the, the dark humour in it. And I love Graham Harper's direction, but in some respects, I think it was too ambitious. Uh, and some bits didn't work. The levitating Dalek for the first time, which you know, is it, done so badly, it's, you practically overlook it, you don't really realise. It was redone very well, and there's lots of nice little bits that sort of tart it up enough to make you to make you enjoy it that little bit more. Uh, and also, secondly, was those moments you have when you're a child that are just just perfect. The, the, the terrifying moments that stick in your brain forever, there are so many in this in this episode. It's, there's the the opening scene in the snow, and the snow was just a blessing, such a blessing. That opening scene with the hand grabbing the apple, absolutely stuck in my mind. And the scene at the end of the first episode, the cliffhanger, when they go into the underground vault and they see all the brains, and there's the the uh, purple pulsating blue light, and then they find um, what's his face, her dad, uh, half transformed into a Dalek, absolutely terrifying, and that is my moment that I can rewatch on DVD and it takes me back to my absolute terrified childish self. Uh, sorry I can't be there, guys, but it's a nice nice sunset. It's almost gone now. Yeah, it doesn't even last today. I, I do really like it. As I said, I, I enjoy this probably far more than I should do. And uh, I, I think it is complicated at the end. I, I think the entire plot that Davros has orchestrated just to lure the Doctor there is elaborate in the extreme. The, the, the two sets of Daleks that come in, like you say, it's, um, it is confusing unless you sit there and watch it again and again, which I have had the benefit of doing, as have most fans now. 
Um, but, you know, it, it's one of my favourite stories. It's one of my favourite Colin Baker performances. And I think it almost, almost without rival is my favourite ending to a season in you know, from an 80s era, at least. A freeze frame. I'll take you to... Yeah, it, it just had the promise of, we're just getting going, guys. I'm going to take you somewhere else. And like you said, the, the, the Dr. Perry dynamic in this is watchable. It's, it's, it's fun to see. And it, it just felt, at the end of that story, it had gone back to where it all started, which was just the two characters, the main characters, talking to each other. And it's going, well, where should we go now? Let's go to Blackpool. It's kind of ironic that you sort of think that the end of this story indicates that the the show's moving on, but it was at this point that, it, that you know, the big axe fell on it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we didn't see it on our screens for 18 months because uh, Michael Grade said, get this rubbish off my TV. Well, so, they were so um, keen to get rid of it. I think it's very clear Eric Sayward didn't like Colin Baker very much and probably is the reason why he's nowhere near the action in episode one. And there, there were too many agendas behind the scene, and it made it very easy for the BBC to say, "Do you know what? Let's let's get rid of this embarrassing program." Um, fortunately, it didn't work, but um, they just altered their tactics three or four years later, and it and, and it did work. So, but on the whole, I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching this, Trevor. I have to say, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I've been able to sit there and talk about some unique parts of it i don't think we've ever talked about revelation in any great depth before perhaps there's a reason for that listening to your opinion exactly but, uh... <laughs> took the words out of my mouth mr rockliffe i tell you <laughs> oh well okay <laughs> okay right we have a question from josh hammock it's funny it's one sentence essentially but I have a feeling we will be discussing the answer at length. Would you rank your doctors from least preference to greatest preference? And you can throw in big finish if it's applicable, which it kind of is, I suppose, because there's been lots of other actors playing the doctor there. So it's a kind of generic question, but, um, and it's, you know, we've probably discussed this in the pub hundreds of times. But who's your favourite and least favourite doctor, Trevor? Uh, my favourite and least favourite? Well,. I'm on record already as saying that the fifth doctor is my favourite doctor, um, uh, merely because I think it was a doctor that I had at the age where people seem to get those sort of memories firmly implanted in their head about stuff they love and stuff they don't love. And the fifth doctor came at a time when I was about 11 or 12 years old, so he became my favourite doctor. So he would be my favourite, my least favourite. Oh, my goodness. Um hard isn't it it is because i mean i i don't i mean i know i can be quite negative sometimes but no uh i i don't often consider a doctor to be the worst but all right okay if if i was pressed to come up with a doctor that i would say was my least favorite i would have to say the 10th doctor oh really really i'm sorry i'm 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 afraid so because I didn't like where they went with the Doctor, with um, with the Tenth Doctor, I wasn't a particular fan of the you know the the, the human elements they introduced. I wasn't a fan of uh, the continuous love stories that we had. Um, I, I I wasn't a fan of the Doctor being less than a Time Lord. Um, he, he he didn't seem as great. He didn't seem as noble. He didn't mm. seem as amazing as a Doctor. To, to, to me, I mean, David Tennant's a fantastic performer, but 
I think the situations he was put in, um, I, I never got the impression that... I mean, my, my doctors command a room when they walk into it and his and their presence is still felt when they leave the room. Um, I've, I've said this on many occasions. I don't think the 10th Doctor um, had that presence. And I think when they did the story Midnight, um, you know, towards the end of his run, that that story showed writ large that the Doctor is not in charge. The Doctor is ineffectual. And, that you know, they wrote a whole story based on that. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, for me, the 10th Doctor is my least favourite because he's the least Doctorish, as far uh, as I'm concerned. No, that's interesting. I, I think my view of the 10th Doctor is tarnished a little bit by his exit and, and uh, for two reasons. One, it was very drawn out. You know, the, the, the specials year, I think, in hindsight, was a, was an error. They should have made Journey's End the last Tenth Doctor story, I think. Um, having said that, I I think there were some individually brilliant stories, you know, and where we weren't looking at crafting this ineffective character, and um, towards the end, a character who became quite arrogant, self indulgent, and those are the thing that kind of sticks in the mind. But um, I think to say that every story was leading to that is not is not right and there were a couple of real gems there as well but i i would i would also say that he's not one of my favorite doctors he's not one that i go back and revisit very often um but he's certainly i don't think my my least favorite but uh, mm. i suppose i suppose i should answer the question really probably yeah well, it's easy to say the favourite Doctor because that's the kind of thing that doesn't really change, does it, very much. Um, and, and, and the third Doctor, for me, will always be my favourite. And uh, I, I love the whole unit setup. I love the kind of camaraderie that the third Doctor engenders throughout all of unit. And, and to be fair, I just love the relationships he has with his companions. I mean, I know he's a patronising what's-it at times, but it, it, it makes me smile. <laughs> um, I love his interaction with Joe Grant. Terror of the Autons, episode one, for me, has so many scenes that I can just remember and I, and I smile at. And I think this Doctor is really quite funny. And, and he's actually quite, he's quite naughty at times. And I, I, I just think he's, I think he's a lot of fun. Uh, I've always enjoyed the third Doctor era. Um, I think probably closely followed behind by, by the fourth, and I'll watch anything with Patrick Troughton in it, really, um, you know, irrespective of the quality of story, just because there are so few of his. So there you are. I, th- I think they're my top three Doctors. My least favourite Doctor, I think that's probably quite clear as well, and it doesn't mean that I don't go back and watch stories from this era, but there's only a few that I really enjoy, and that's the seventh Doctor, and I, I think mm. that's that's in common mm. with a number of other fans as well i mean remembrance fantastic really enjoy that there are some brilliant moments in femric and ghostlight not that they're my favorite stories but i appreciate the design and the acting and the stories are intricate they're adult they're intelligent and it took the show in a direction that um you know it, it needed to go it needed to go away from what clearly was a very slapstick and unpopular um era of the show that came before it Sylvester McCoy's first season for me was was probably my least favourite season of all Doctor Who ever and uh, I I wondered whether I was ever going to find my love for it again after I started watching it seriously then 
But it's got Delta and the Bannerman in it. I How know. How can you not like season 24? <laughs> because it, it's not really a Doctor Who story, is it? It's more or less Heidi High and, uh, <laughs> with, with a comedic bus and um, Clive Dunn. Clive Dunn? No. Clive. What, no, what's his name with a tickle stick? Ken Dodd. <laughs> yeah, him. So, yes, him. That guy. Uh, it, it's not really a Doctor Who story. And I, I think I enjoy that story because it is so silly and... Bonnie Langford's acting is almost secondary, you know, it's it, it, because the story is so utterly <laughs> ludicrous. I can almost overlook it. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm not sure what you meant by that saying it was secondary, but it, it does, yeah. I think I well, know what I, you I mean. I mean, it was a secondary importance. <laughs> Normally, whenever I watch a story with Bonnie Langford or Mel in it, a, a, a telly story, not one of the big finishes, um, I, I, I cringe because, first and foremost, it comes out that she is utterly miscast and not a particularly interesting or engaging character. So, as opposed to that being number one for me, and the most prominent thing in Delta, it's almost secondary because the absolute craziness of the scenario the characters find themselves in trumps even Bonnie Langford's bad acting. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it says on this bit of paper in front of me that I need to end the episode of the Doctor Who podcast. So I, I think it's time to call it a day here, James. We've we, we rattled on about least favourite and favourite Doctors. We've talked about Colin Baker. We've talked about um, we've talked about a disembodied Davros and different Daleks and and, and, and and Doctor Who in cinemas. How did we manage to cram it into 45 minutes? That's what I want to know. Uh, well, it's just very skillful editing, I would suggest. And that's neither of us listeners. That would be Michelle. Michelle will be making this conversation presentable for you. Since it's Michelle editing, I'm sure at this point she's got the uh, musical sting of the end of the episode swelling up behind us majestically as we glide gracefully out of this episode. So, goodbye, James. Goodbye, Trevor. And goodbye, Michelle. Happy editing. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay. We'll have a countdown. We should have a countdown. I know Michelle doesn't yeah, need one. Yeah, we should. One. Michelle doesn't need one. Why not? There we go. Michelle doesn't... No, we're not going to give it to her because no. Michelle doesn't need them even though everyone should use them. Okay, well, we, we could just, just do a mad. random one. Three, five, one, two, three. There you go. I hope that Six, helps, Michelle. Six. Five and a half. Seven. Yes. Seven. Four. Algebra. Eight. I love Ten. eight. Eight's my favourite number. E okay. MC squared. Big finish at Ian and Michelle from across. What, what, what? What, 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 There we go. Who needs Leeson when you got us? Yes. Wonderful. In future, we'll just go for your disses instead of his. Absolutely. I'm a hell of a lot cheaper than Leeson, too. So I hear. Anyway. Go on in, Trevor, since you're doing musical stings, come up with a musical sting so that Michelle doesn't have to put one in. Alright. How about that? Rubbish. That's my Warriors of the Deep one. Like, like all the music in that sounds like it's been recorded underwater. <laughs> Probably because it has been. <laughs> I don't know. That was one of the most innovative things about that story, the music. Yeah, you know, yeah. the whole story's a bit wet. So, yeah. <laughs>